Hello and welcome to Aspects of History. I'm Oliver Webb Carter and I'm the editor. If you're new to Aspects of History, we're a magazine and website dedicated to history and historical fiction. Head over to aspectsofhistory.com where you'll find articles, interviews, book reviews and short stories and they're all absolutely free. Our magazine is at the insanely cheap price of under a tenner for a year's subscription and that's under a tenner in American as well. Anyway, on to the podcast. If you enjoy it, please give it a great rating. It'll help us carry on running them. Welcome back to our chat with Sarah Griswood, the author of Tudors in Love. Coming up in part two, we'll be discussing the courtly code and how it was used with ladies of the age, including Anne of Cleves, Lady Jane Grey, Queen Mary and Queen Elizabeth I. I would recommend you listen to part one if you haven't already. For those that have, welcome back. We move to an, another wife that I'm, I'm, I'm always very interested in and, and always got sympathy for, but she did like, at least get away with her life, and that's Anne of Cleves, uh, Thomas Cromwell's choice. Um, now, she wasn't quite what Henry was after. You know, he wouldn't have um, done well for uh, in Andreas Capellanus's uh, approval ratings uh, in dealing with, de- dealing with Anne. I mean, where does the courtly code leave well, us here? Yeah, well, you see, I find it's quite significant, I think, that, uh, for my view of Henry, certainly, that of all the six wives, this was the only time he tried to make the kind of marriage that would have been considered normal for a medieval or early modern royal, i.e. with a foreign princess or notable and one he may never even have met. The only time he tried and he couldn't carry it through. There's evidence that before this Anne, odd, isn't it, that she has the same name as Anne Boleyn, um, that before Anne of Cleves arrived, he was kind of polishing up his court, getting the musicians ready. Unfortunately, Anne, you know, knew nothing of music, came from a singularly unpolished world. And when Henry rushed down to Rochester to meet Anne as she arrived in England, and he went, or, you know, on her journey to London, um, he went down in disguise, and it all went hideously wrong. Anne failed to recognise him. Anne showed her disgust at this apparent huge stranger accosting her. But again, the disguised meeting was an absolute regular of courtly love. This was a very established game. True love was meant to see through any disguise. Unfortunately, no one had told Anne. This was not a game Anne of Cleves was equipped to play. The courtly code um, between women, because obviously, you know, Mm. the the men are pursuing her. And what what I wondered was, um, how did the courtly code work between women? Would they have dis- would they have discussed it? Do we know? Um, you know, as a way to deal with these uh, uh, the, the, well, the other sex. Yeah, that's an interesting question. Um, certainly, heading back to where Andreas Capellanus is getting a good. You know, someone should tell him he's getting good PR. Here. <laughs> um, Certainly, he did envisage, absolutely, this world of this group of powerful women discussing this, you know, jury of ladies 
discussing all these matters among themselves. So, yes, in, in that sense, it absolutely did. Um, where I'd see it reappearing in a way for the subject of my book is questions like that continental education Anne Boleyn had. Because Anne Boleyn, in the years before she reappeared at the, appeared at the English court, she'd been um, a youthful maid to Margaret of Austria. And then she'd been at the court of, you know, first of Mary Tudor in France, but staying on at the French court, where she uh, undoubtedly came under, to some degree, the influence of Marguerite of Navarre. And both those powerful European ladies, Margaret of Austria, Marguerite of Navarre, had a lot to say about love in general and courtly love in particular, not all of it flattering. But so there is a sense there, yes, of lessons being passed from one woman to another. That was in a way what my last book, Game of Queens, was about. So we move from Henry VIII to Edward VI. Edward VI dies. Lady Jane Grey is briefly uh, a candidate for Queen. And it's a tragic story. She's so young and, and manipulated. Um, but how did the courtly code work with, with Lady Jane Grey? Mm. Yes, you see there, I don't think it did really. I mean, there is a, a, a measure of hiatus after the death of, of Henry VIII, as you say, his son Edward comes to the throne as a child and dies before, you know, his romantic proclivities became apparent. But nothing that we know about him suggests that he, his interests were, he, you know, he marched to a different drummer. His interests were in the Protestant faith. And Jane Grey, of course, came also from that world. And NB, that the new, uh, certainly the sort of, the stricter arms of the Protestant faith didn't have much use for courtly love. So in a way, this is kind of, you know, this is almost the exception that proves the rule in the sense that, oh, the Catholic faith had at least, you know, had reverence for the Virgin Mary, for female saints, allowed a measure of worship of those holy women, at least. The, the new Protestant faith really certainly in its more extreme elements, really didn't. Where you do see it to some degree, only some, is in um, the behaviour, the reign of the woman who of course won the throne against Lady Jane Grey, Mary. Bloody Mary, as she's sometimes, in, you know, rather unfairly called, Henry VIII's daughter. She also uh, was no, no, no real follower of the courtly code as Catherine of Aragon's daughter, as someone who'd learned to define herself by her religion. She again marched to a different drama. But at the same time, there is a rather anachronistic flash of romanticism in Mary. I mean, when the whole question of her marriage came up with Philip of Spain, um, she, she protested, and now I'm quoting from memory and I'll get it wrong, but the, you know, as common people basically choose their own proclivities as they follow their own hearts in this matter, surely sovereigns may claim an equal liberty. 
And most people then have said, no, they mayn't. So even in Mary, there was some flash of, um, of a feeling not altogether acceptable for her day. But of course, it's when Elizabeth comes to the throne that things really get going. Yes. So Elizabeth I, um, a, a great monarch. Now, she's, she's almost the polar opposite to her father, who, in that she never married. Uh, he obviously did. The contrast between the two, and yet, yet it, this does, at least it, it comes out in the book, that, that this is the sort of golden era for, uh, for, for, the, uh, for, for the courtly code. I mean, I don't quite know, but golden, yes, in a sense, in that it reached its greatest height in in England. But it was, you know, this was almost the kind of, you know, fatal last phase, you know. It was becoming an overblown fruit that, that had to fall. But nonetheless, um, Elizabeth, like her father in a different way, absolutely used the courtly code because Elizabeth's reign again we don't always remember this now it was seen at, at first as presenting a huge problem the reign of for any woman in England to be a, a ruler a queen regnant was controversial yes Mary had done it but only for six years and Mary had married and of course, as a Catholic, Mary was in some sense under the spiritual authority of the Pope. She wasn't the absolute top of the tree in the way that Elizabeth was. Um, although we now, we now know Elizabeth as the Virgin Queen, the assumption in the early days of the reign would be that she too absolutely had to marry. When over the years, it became apparent she wouldn't. There had to be a kind of language, a coding for this very controversial unmarried monarchy and courtly love provided it. I mean, we know there's been lots of work done on a lot of the iconographies Elizabeth used, you know, of the Virgin Mary, of classical literature, but courtly love, it's amazing how closely it fit her particular bill. It gave just what she needed. I mean, on the one hand, it made it possible for all those favourites and courtiers, men like Leicester, Hatton, Raleigh, Essex in the end, to sort of, you know, present themselves in postures of devotion for, for years on end and probably so, well, for most of them, certainly not actually get anywhere, not even have expected to get anywhere, really. On another way, it gave license to Elizabeth's own, you know, flirtatious behaviour. But more fundamentally, there was a lot about the courtly code that was spot on for Elizabeth. I mean, the courtly lady was meant to be demanding, difficult, you know, prodding her lover with a cattle prod effectively well Elizabeth didn't have many difficulties with that one did she the courtly lady however was meant to provide a superior moral example well Elizabeth was the woman who was meant to be giving moral example to her whole country you know who was meant to be God's representative on earth even things like the theory of the queen's two bodies 
you know, one, um, the one frail, natural female body, the other theoretical ruler's body, fit with that kind of gender reversal in in courtly love, because there was a kind of gender reversal. C.S. Lewis, one of the great authorities on it, as well as the inventor of Narnia, um, noted the courtly lover addressed his lady back in, you know, back when, as Midon, which actually means not my lady, but my lord. You know, and all of it worked for Elizabeth perfectly. And I think she and those around her were far too canny propagandists not to recognise such a good thing when they saw it. Now, I wanted to talk about some of Elizabeth's suitors, or I guess they were attempting it. I, I mean, and and some of them are, are rather pathetic, aren't they? Um, <laughs> could, could you talk a little bit about about them and and how they, uh, you know, tried sure. try, had a go? Yeah. Uh, and yeah, and yeah, I think I think you're thinking of the favourites rather than the foreign. Yes, yes, I am. Yes, yes, yes. Yes. Well, I think I think they were in slightly different position. Well, I think one of them was in a different position. Robert Dudley, Earl of Leicester. He wound up, of course, as the Queen's first and greatest favourite. But when she came to the throne, there was real, repeated, perpetual talk halfway across Europe that she would actually marry him. She couldn't do it then and there because, of course, Robert Dudley was already a married man. But there was talk his wife might die, his wife might be put aside. When his wife did die, of course, Amy Amy Robsart, it was in a blast of scandal that she seemed to have been murdered that made it impossible for Elizabeth and, and Lester, Robert Dudley, to marry then and there. Though I find it very significant that even when the scandal died away, you know, Elizabeth never did marry him. But Robert Dudley was someone who really was a suitor. He had realistic hopes Elizabeth might marry him. I mean, Elizabeth told um, Spanish ambassador jokingly that there were rumours around she had married Robert, that her ladies were asking whether they should kiss his hand. The I don't think anybody else was in quite that position. Christopher Hatton younger but of the same generation if you like as Essex wrote these lavish protestations of love but there was really absolutely there was no question of him being a serious suitor indeed I think part of what made the game so pleasurable for both of them was that you know it patently was just a fantasy And later in Elizabeth's reign, the men of the second generation, if you like, Walter Raleigh and particularly the Earl of Essex, um, Leicester's stepson, of course, uh, played this same game. But by then, I mean, Essex was three decades younger than Elizabeth. You know, there was actually talk that he was her son rather than rather than her would be lover. He still used the same language you know, all about conquering her resisting will and being captivated by beauty and so on. But I don't think anyone was expected to take it seriously, other than in that literary courtly sense. The courtly code, how did that, and this is my last question really, 
Uh, how did that Courtney code evolve? I'm thinking that it's it's kind of evolved into the Victorian era of you know the gentleman, mm -hmm. the lady, and uh, mm -hmm. and and that kind those kind of behaviours that are that seem so uh, natural to the Victorian era. Is that is that the na natural evolution of the Courtney code? Y yes, uh, yes, with some hiccups on the way. Elizabeth, of course, was succeeded by James I, not a man who'd be having any truck with any of this nonsense, thank you. Uh, though, mind you, he, even he wasn't above using the Arthurian stories. You might say that to some degree it, it vanished from centre stage over the next century or two, but it was the romantic, certainly in England, I'm talking about in, in England or in Britain as by then it was, it was the Romantic era that really brought it back into full force. Partly a general interest, both, you know, emotional and academic, in all things medieval, medieval history, medieval literature, King Arthur. And there was then a gigantic, very conscious recreation of chivalry and the courtly code. I mean, two centuries, after the last tournament in England, 1839, the Eglinton tournament, knights in absolutely authentic armour, thundering down the lists at the castle of the, you know, the Earl of Eglinton, um, prize awarded by a queen of beauty, hundreds of thousands of spectators. And it just went on and on um, with some slight provisos. I mean, in a sense, uh, the courtly code was kind of borrowed for Victorian morality a bit. I mean, Tennyson, no one could be more interested in the Arthurian stories, for example, but his Idylls of the King has, uh, has Arthur thundering away at a Guinevere prostrate at his feet, you know, saying he'll forgive her as eternal God forgives. And, you know, and when she's saying, oh, she's saying, uh, yes, but, he, Arthur, my husband, is high and cold and passionless, not like him, not like my Lancelot. And you do rather feel like saying, yeah, Arthur, you know, there's a reason she left you. There's a reason she went off with Lancelot instead. But the pre-Raphaelites loved all those stories from a completely different angle. You know, they just loved Guinevere and Lancelot. Um so too did the, the souls, this kind of upper-class coterie. There's a story, one of them, and Wilfred Scone and Blunt, going to visit another, and they walked, in, they walked around a medieval castle, both dressed in white, discussing Lancelot and Guinevere. I absolutely love that she, she changed into black to tell him they could only be friends. But I think... The way, the way the courtly code, the whole idea of chivalry, and, and of course the idea of chivalry was huge for the Victorians. I mean, you'd got Sir Galahad, a picture of Sir Galahad in the chapel at Eton. You'd got Baden-Powell telling his baby boys, baby knights, his boy scouts to be chivalrous to ladies. It was co-opted into the idea of empire also, though that's probably one we can't really go into here. Um, because it's a, a very big subject. But that whole kind of Victorian picture, we've probably a lot of us seen the illustrations in children's books and so on. It's the Victorians gave us the basic image 
the knight, the, the, the lover, the squire kneeling at the, at the lady's feet. And I think it's that picture which has come on down the 20th century. I think we're absolutely getting courtly love in several different ways, you know, partly through our whole idea of romance and what love means, you know, just love at first sight, love as something that ennobles you. But we are not getting it direct from the 12th century. I think we get it through the Victorian prison. It was all, it was those great Victorian images and stories which many of us, I won't say kids now because I don't know, but my generation, you know, all of us who grew up in the last decades of the 20th century, we all were still receiving this. And maybe that's why we need to discuss it today. Absolutely. Uh, that's a great way to end it, Sarah. Uh, it's a, it's, it's a, it's a really, I really enjoyed reading it. It's a, it's a fun book, so I do recommend it. Um, out next week. Tudors in Love, The Courtly Code Behind the Last Medieval Dynasty. Sarah, thank you. You've also actually written a, a wonderful article for us in, in next month's issue of Aspects of History. So, so our readers and listeners should check that out. It's, it's very amusing. And I, I thank you again for your insight into The Courtly Code. Thank you very much. Well, there you have it. I hope you enjoyed Sarah's expertise in the courtly code. Her book is out of the moment. We'll have our next podcast out soon, and that will be a chat with Andrew Roberts, the best-selling and acclaimed historian and author of Churchill, Walking with Destiny, Napoleon the Great, Masters and Commanders, and Salisbury, Victorian Titan. We'll be discussing George III, the king during the American War of Independence, and probably most famous because of the film The Man is the King George. So do join us then. Thank you and good night.